Could I remessed luxury provide, I'd bathe with you in true pharaonic style. You'd be my Isis, my beloved bride, and I the son of Ra upon the Nile. Or did I over Caesar's empire rule, were I in all, Mark Antony again, like him, my gypsy love, I'd play the fool, all passions else and power itself disdain. Alas, such ancient evenings are not ours. They are but dreams of which you're redolent. Your eyes and limbs are mine, Ilotic Bowers. My foolishness, your breasts, your hair, your scent. So bathe me till I get recalled to duty. Intoxicate me. Drown me in your beauty. That was Dr. Paul Monk, poet and polymath, reading the opening sonnet Bath of Dreams, taken from his collection of poems called Sonnets to a Promiscuous Beauty, a homage to the Western canon. You're joining us on Eudaimonia, a podcast about human flourishing. You might remember Paul from my first podcast, which was about the life of Brother Mike O'Loughlin, about whom Paul had written a biography. Today I want to talk to Paul about his life and the wide range of books that he has written. In particular, I want to talk to him about this contentious and complex idea of Western civilization, which is mentioned in the subtitle of Sonnets to Promiscuous Beauty. So, Paul, thank you for being with me today again on Eudaimonia. It's really wonderful to have you back here in your apartment in Parkville. Um, which has become my sort of recording studio for the meantime. But um, let's pick up from the subtitle of your book, as I sort of mentioned before, um, A Homage to the Western Canon. Can you um, speak about, I guess, why why you've used the words homage, why Western, why canon, when so many people are critical of each three of these words individually today, the very unfashionable words to use, and to use them a collective is another level of infringement on people's sensibilities. So, yeah, if you want to jump off from there, that'd be great. Yeah, I... I've never been one, I might say, to be, um, as we say, politically correct. So it doesn't much concern me that people might uh, shy away from or not align with something I might write. I write what I feel and what I think. But the specific reason that I wrote this particular book is that years ago, when I was madly in love, um, I set about writing sonnets for uh, the woman I was in love with. I'd written sonnets for other women. Uh, I, I think I wrote my best sonnets, if not my best poems, for this woman 25 years ago. Mm. And um, she said to me one evening after I'd read one more of these poems, you know, you must get these poems published because then in years to come, whatever happens between you and me, I'll be able to hold up your book and say, I inspired this. <laughs> uh, a poet doesn't need very much more inducement. <laughs> but the fact that I was writing sonnets, and I'd learned to write a sonnet simply by reading Shakespeare's famous 154 sonnets. I read every one, and I thought, okay, I get the idea. Mm. And that was at the inducement of some other young woman. Um, was a kind of experiment. Okay, so Shakespeare's famous for writing these sonnets. Can I write a sonnet? Well, the first one I wrote won a prize, and so that addicted me for years to writing sonnets whenever I was in love. And in this particular case, I finally ended up doing as that particular woman for my this book, uh, mm. urging and, and turning it into a book. I selected 12 of the best, put them together in a sequence, and they tell a story. But in telling that story, they go right back through the Western tradition. They go back to pre-classical antiquity, all the way up to modern theatre in their illusions. And as I remark in the preface to that book, uh, I wrote these poems in a way not only to please her, uh, and only secondarily to please others, but to please myself as an exercise in exploring what it meant to be a literate person, what it meant to play around with the Western canon. Uh, and I've enjoyed that exercise. Um, so 
why was it a homage? Because it was an obeisance to Shakespeare and the, the poetic tradition and the mythological tradition of the West, which is alluded to richly in the poems. Why the Western canon? Well, I'm a citizen of the West. I'm not a citizen of India or China or some part of Africa. I am from the West. That's just a reality, what everyone might think. Uh, And as for canon, well, I think some things are canonical. I mean, Shakespeare, the Bible, the Greek classics, some of the great works of political philosophy and theory, um, some of the other great modern works of literature. These are canonical in the sense that they are the best, most powerful things that have been written. And for centuries, people have been enriched and instructed by them. To suggest that one shouldn't be requires a robust defence. And I address that elsewhere, but I don't feel in the slightest bit embarrassed by having enjoyed that tradition and written within it to the best of my ability. I really like the way you speak about Western civilization as being this parameterized, understandable body of knowledge which anyone can access and enrich themselves in with the right education. The image which springs to mind is of a grand palace with multiple rooms containing the scientific, philosophical and cultural riches of the Western tradition, such as Shakespearean or Plutarchan sonnets as you've enjoyed. Could you speak a bit about where your interests in Western civilization come from and how you managed to develop your own skills as a poet to the point that you could write something in the mould of Shakespeare as demonstrated in Sonnets to a Promiscuous Beauty? Well, it's very generous of you to make that last remark. Let me just say a little facetiously when you talk about Plutarch sonnets. Plutarch did not write sonnets. No. Plutarch wrote uh, the, the lives of the noble Petrarchan Romans. Petrarchan sonnets, I meant. I meant Petrarchan, oh, Petrarchan. sonnets. Okay, right, right, right. Again, first time nerves. My second time nerves again showing through. <laughs> so for the benefit of your listeners, I'd say yeah. Plutarch was a second century um, uh, philosopher who yeah. lived in Greece. Petrarch was a 13th century Italian poet who did write sonnets. I believe and shot inspired Shakespeare and formed Shakespeare. Yes, I'm wrong there. yes, and although the Shakespearean sonnet is different to the Petrarchan yes, sonnet, but that's a point of detail. Um, to, <laughs> I'm blushing, everyone can see I'm blushing. <laughs> to address your broader question, you used the metaphor or analogy of, yes. a, of a palace with many rooms, yes. um, which of course inevitably brings to mind that famous remark of Jesus in the Gospel that my father's house has many rooms, you know. Um, and that's in the imaginary, all right? So we have this metaphysical vision of heaven as a mansion with many rooms in the gospel. Uh, the idea of Western civilization as a mansion with many rooms taps into that, except that it's larger again than a specifically mm. Christian tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does one get access to that? The answer is twofold. If, as an adventurous and reasonably intelligent individual, you make a deliberate effort to read some of the great books, uh, you can become conversant with them. Abraham Lincoln famously did that. He never went to a university. He didn't have what we would normally call a classical education, but he read the King James Bible. He read some of the Greek classics in English translation, and his speeches, his diction, are littered with his knowledge of these texts, which he appropriates and uses in the American political context of the mid-19th century. So one approach, and in some respects this has been my approach, is to determinedly go out and say, I am going to master this tradition. I wish to be conversant with it. The other, more traditional approach, harder to get these days, is a university classical education where you are inducted into it quite deliberately. Now, that has some advantages if you have very good teachers and access to first-class libraries, but it can be stultifying because you're inducted into it in a very academic way. Lincoln was not academic. Lincoln was a very practical man. Yes, but you were both an autodidact like Lincoln, but you were also 
steeped in the traditions through formal education at University of Melbourne, is that correct? Well, to some extent, yes. When I went to university first after leaving school, everybody had said to me, you've got the gift of a gab, you're a good debater and public speaker, you'll be a QC, um, mm. um, uh, Queen's Council, yeah. you know, a, a great lawyer. Um, and so I went off to do law at Monash University, but after some months I thought to myself, wait a minute, I don't know who I am. I don't know how the world works. There's a lot around me that I find baffling in terms of religion, in terms of politics, in terms of world affairs, the Cold War. I'm not prepared to push all that aside, reach glib opinions or accept conventional wisdom and go into law. I've got to figure out what's going on. So I left university. I spent 18 months out doing um, bodybuilding and piano lessons and mm. starting to build up a library of my own. Mm -hmm. Then I went back this time to Melbourne University because I wanted to do a liberal arts degree. Mm -hmm. I wanted to master what Western civilization in the first instance was. What I discovered was that nobody was really teaching Western civilization at university anymore. There were lots of different subjects. It was a kind of smorgasbord. But what you studied and how it fitted together and when it turned you out as a liberty-educated person, that was very dubious by the late 70s. Yeah. Now, for practical purposes, it simply doesn't exist. It simply does not exist anymore. Why is that? Right. Is that it's been demolished by a number of processes, which um, let's come back to that in a moment, sure, if sure. we may. Mm. Just uh, I persevered with this, mm. um, choosing subjects and trying to put together a degree that would take me from pre-classical antiquity through the classical world, the rise of Christianity, the Reformation, modern revolutions, 20th century history, so that I would have a kind of synoptic understanding of mm. what Western civilization was, what challenges it had faced, where it stood. And then after that, I realized, well, okay, that's been very interesting. I'm more or less literate, but I've got to make a living. Um, and what I ended up doing, um, I won't go into all the ins and outs of it for the moment, but I ended up doing a doctorate in international relations, which enabled me to explore why there was a Cold War, what the underlying logic of it was, how it was being thought about. Uh, when I finished that, I, I didn't have any money. I was over 30. I desperately needed a job. I ended up working in intelligence, in the Defence Intelligence Organization, and they assigned me to work on East Asia. So for the first time, after a determined effort to master Western Civ, I must very specifically work on Eastern Civ, work on China, on Japan, on the Koreas, um, brief serious people, senior bureaucrats, politicians about the future of Hong Kong. This is in the early 90s, before the handover. Get your mind around the problem of Taiwan and the cross-straits tensions. Right? Understand North Korea's nuclear program. Understand the Japanese economy. Okay? Um, so I was broadened. Mm. Right? Um, so to come back to your question, how does one get a liberal education? Mm -hmm. uh, ideally, one would have access to very good education, very good tutoring, very good books, a coherent curriculum at universities. By and large today, right now, one doesn't. One doesn't. Not in Australia. Uh, and I'm, I'm passionate about this. But instead of going into university uh, over the last 20 or 30 years and trying to make that happen, I've pursued a living. I've written publicly and my books the sonnets the western nutshell credo are my effort to make publicly available the conclusions that i've arrived at based on my own learning mm. uh, and what others make of them is really up to them there's a moving section in the prologue of your book the western nutshell which describes how as a young boy you are moved by your teacher's reading of the lord of the rings and in particular by the character elrond Halfelven, who could look back on thousands of years of history in our time what is your current definition of western civilization and where would you say it began precisely in geographic and temporal terms? Let me just briefly touch on this question of the boyhood inspiration. It's true, as you say, that 
The Lord of the Rings was read to my fifth grade class mm. in 1967 by a young woman who also read us from the Narnia cycle of C.S. Lewis mm. and read us The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And I stayed in touch with her intimately for many years afterwards, and I would often say to her, reading those stories was the best thing you did. I can't remember all the routine instruction we got in reading, writing, arithmetic. I'm sure that happened. But um, but reading those stories was wonderful. And for me, at least, The Lord of the Rings made an indelible impression. Uh, and to refer back to what you were um, paraphrasing about Elrond, um, for those who don't know The Lord of the Rings, he is Elrond Half-Elven, who thousands of years before the story begins had um, been defeated by the Dark Lord and set up a refuge in a hidden valley called Imladris or Rivendell. Uh, and there, when the real story begins, the hobbits arrive in Rivendell and there's this council of Elrond and he's speaking to the council and he's referring back to things that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And one of the hobbits, Frodo, of course, is the central hobbit in the story, says, you know, you say you remember this, but, but didn't that happen a long age ago? Mm. Indeed it did, says Elrond. You know, but I've seen three ages in the west of the world and many defeats and many fruitless victories. And I remember thinking as a youngster, wow, mm. imagine. Mm. Right? Now, we can only emulate that by reading a great deal. None of us lives as he did for thousands of years. But in fact, if one did, if you only had personal memory, it would be much less accurate than it can be through the uses of good scholarship. So um, by reading seriously, we can understand what happened thousands of years ago. Uh, and I've made a very deliberate effort, at least at a first pass, to do that. All right? Now to answer your second question, so where, if anywhere, could one say that Western civilization begins? You Geographically say, and temporally. Yes. And, and the first point one needs to make is that there isn't a precise answer because all of the terminology we use is somewhat indeterminate. It's an approximation. But I think it would be reasonable to say that what we normally think of as Western civilization is identified with classical Greece, to a lesser extent with pre-classical Greece and Minoan civilization in the Aegean, but that a finding moment comes when the Persian Empire, the great king in the east, says to the Greek city-states, including Athens and Sparta, you must send earth and water in homage to me as the great king, because you are just little Greek city-states. And these Greek city-states see themselves as very independent. And though a number of them, out of fear, kowtow, and they do send homage to the great king, famously the Athenians and Spartans, and I might add the Macedonians, say, no, no, we're free men. We don't do this. In fact, in Sparta, the Persian envoys were thrown down a well, and the Spartans said to them, is there enough earth and water down there for you? <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and, and very famously, for anybody who knows even the glimmering of ancient history, the Persians then launched a massive invasion of Greece and they were routed. They were thoroughly defeated by these little Greek city-states. That's, in a sense, symbolically at least, where Western civilization begins, with, with free city-states, and most notably the Athenian city-state, which embodied a form of democracy, that is to say public deliberative politics, as distinct from oligarchy or monarchy, defeating the great empire in the east and from that time forward the west has been broadly defined as greco-roman civilization which later absorbed uh, a version of judaism which became christianity uh, and it has been defined over against barbarians or eastern empires non-western civilizations 
the Persians, later the German invaders, um, the Huns, mm. um, China, right? Um, now, that's an approximate definition. Um, the borders geographically have varied a little over time, mm. but the image is not difficult to grasp. And I might add, of course, that this fed into my, my love of Tolkien stuff because, of course, his story is about the West and a threat coming from the East. It's about um, a higher order of culture uh, embodied in elven culture but instantiated also among men and dwarves and, to a lesser extent, hobbits threatened by uh, the imperial realm led by the Dark Lord, yeah. right? And it's a history that goes back thousands of years. So the overlay was pretty clear. To answer your third question, where do we stand now? Well, we're at a very unusual point because the West famously, and in the eyes of many people, notoriously overran most of the rest of the world from the 16th century forward. And until the mid-20th century, um, Western powers ruled on a colonial basis much of the rest of the world uh, in the second half of the 20th century that came to an end now what we see is a number of those other cultures most obviously at the moment the Chinese culture ascendant um, or at least resurrected if you might say mm. and many people are thinking the West is on the back foot um, we talk about the rest of the West we talk about the Asian century yes. That's a good time to be asking ourselves very searching and honest questions about, so what does define the West? What is valuable about Western civilization? What would we want to sustain, to renew, to defend, if need be? And how do we differentiate ourselves from Chinese civilization, from Islamic civilization? Uh, these are very live questions right now. Two things struck me about your reflections just now. The first is that if we are to achieve Oberon's perspective in terms of fully grasping history, our history, then we need to have engaging and readily accessible educational resources at our disposal. And I don't think that this is the case at secondary or tertiary institutions today. Secondly, I think some of the language around discussing Western civilization, even with reference to Elrond and Lord of the Rings as a metaphor, can become quite binary or reductive, which leads to an othering of other peoples and civilizations, which I think people actually tend to recall from. In my mind, this dichotomy between the West and the rest leads to the whole notion of Western civilization being tarnished and controversial. Could you reflect on that? Yes, th there are a number of themes here, of course. Um, let me say, I think, first off, that it's very important to distinguish between two things here. One is uh, this idea of a Western civilization that, as a citizen of, of a Western country, that is one which has inherited its institutions from the West in the sense that I've defined it broadly. Um, but the second uh, is this idea that there are, there are human truths and realities that um, uh, have been developed in some distinctive way in the West that have more universal application. Uh, this is what's become more controversial at the moment. The idea that the West has something uniquely valuable to offer because that seems like an imposition on others and it's associated with colonialism and the domination of others. Exceptionalism, basically, at the expense of others Western who exceptionalism. are not exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, right. or who need to be given the light of the, the torch of humanity, as was the Conrad's sort of famous thing from Heart of Darkness about the, you know, the spirit of the torch of humanity, whatever it was. Exactly. You know, the, the French used to call their, their colonial uh, endeavours uh, mission civilisatrice, they'd civilise the... Civilisational right? mission, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Kipling famously talked about 
you know, yes. the white man's burden and, indeed, and indeed. the lesser breeds, right? Yes, yes. This unsurprisingly rankles with a lot of people. Yeah. Yes. And not only people in those countries, but actually many people in the West who have an egalitarian of sense of it. Yeah. So there's no mystery as to why that would be something that needs to be grappled with honestly. The second thing is in the 20th century, a series of catastrophes erupted primarily in the West. So starting with the Great War, which disrupted what had apparently been uh, an onward and upward trajectory, at least from a Western point of view, mm. of technological and economic progress. And it was followed by uh, the Great Depression, which tended to bring discredit on the idea that market economics was the way mm. forward, mm -hmm. followed by the Second World War, which was far more horrendous than the first, absolutely devastating, and at its epicentre was Germany in particular espousing a form of totalitarianism and of racism and practising genocide on an industrial scale. Mm. This had come out of a, a country that had given us Goethe and Beethoven, you know, uh, and Kant. And this was a deep shock, I think, to many people in the West and to many people outside the West who were in colonial states. So I thought, well, insofar as we've been told to admire and look up to the West and essentially westernise, we're looking at this and thinking, I'm not so sure about that. It's right. Totally savage and, and yeah. civilised and, and inhumane in many ways, right? Indeed it was. And, and it was in that context that, that uh, Mahatma Gandhi at one point was asked, you know, what do you think of Western civilization? And he quipped, I think it would be a very good idea. <laughs> right? um, that really was a point of entry into the mood of a lot of people in uh, the West itself and around the world after the Second World War. That, okay, you talk about Western civilization, but when it comes right down to it, there's, there's colossal war, there's massive depression, there's colonial exploitation, there's genocide... And nothing that you talk about in the Western tradition seems to have inhibited that to any great extent. You, you fought it, you defeated the Nazis by massive war, but that included strategic bombing, which was itself criminal in a lot of ways, right? Dresden and so on. Right. So, so let's not misunderstand one another here. I, I don't for a moment suggest that there's something called Western civilization which is unblemished and pristine and everybody should adopt it forthwith. We do seem to deify and apotheosize, if that's the right word. Yeah, you know, this idea of the West. We right? do. Yeah. Let's go back, therefore, even to its classical roots. And one could step forward to history, get enough time and do this again and again in different contexts. So Athens defies the Persian Empire. Athens says, in Pericles' very famous funeral speech in 430 BCE, he says to the Athenians, we are the school of Hellas. We are an open society. We welcome people to come and look and learn and we're not paranoid about foreigners visiting. We are a democracy. That is to say, we have public assemblies where we debate policy. Mm. It's not made up by leaders who arrogate power to themselves. We believe in participation in public life. We believe in a career open to merit. This is in so many ways, though it was said 2,400 years ago, yes. almost a prospectus for what we talk about as a liberal or open or perhaps social democratic remarkable. society. Mm. Right? It's quite remarkable. But Athenian democracy failed. It ended up unable and unwilling to defend itself internally. The Greek city-states fought one another until they were overrun by the Macedonians and monarchy was established. Alexander, the first great Western colonialist, went then and conquered the Persian Empire. He tends to be glorified, but there have been a lot of debates then and since about whether it was right for him to do what he did, about some of the atrocities he's committed. Right. So these debates... These failures are every bit as much a part of the of Western civilization and of our inheritance as the glories. 
And we need to learn from this as to what can go wrong. Yes. And, and to quickly add, then the Roman Republic arises. And what does it do? It conquers the known world, the Mediterranean world. Right? It crushes its opponents, and sometimes ruthlessly. Yes. Um, and then the Republic fails and is placed by tyranny, by an empire. Uh, and many of the emperors are, to say the very least, not ideal rulers. This is part of Western civilization. Other civilizations have had the same issues without ever establishing democracy or republics. There's never been in, in the Chinese civilization uh, until the 20th century a republic at all. Right? It's always been monarchy. Um, but what I'm emphasizing here is that we, we learn from both the aspirations and achievements and also the failures and debacles in Western civilization as citizens of the West. And the real strengths, the real riches of Western civilization are those figures who stand up for ideals, who pioneer inquiry, who criticize abuses, who reflect, who write things that even though others around them don't live up to them, still inspire us. And when we, when we talk about Western civilization, therefore I want to suggest at the core of it are those thoughts those aspirations and in some measure those achievements. So we go back to why Shakespeare? but Not because Shakespeare was an apologist for Elizabethan monarchy, not because he was Tudor, not because he was male and white, right? but because he wrote extraordinary drama, extraordinary comedy, extraordinary poetry, mm. which is humanly inspiring. And that doesn't mean no other civilization produced wonders. But if we're talking Western civilization, we look at those heights and say, that's still inspiring. I think a lot of the discussion about Western civilization in academia and public discourse is very deficit-focused and at times unbalanced and distorted. Without discounting the negatives of Western civilization, such as imperialism, patriarchy and slavery, which are not unique to the West either, could you dwell on some positive examples of the riches of Western civilization which are worth celebrating and studying? Well, let's, let's take a simple example. I, I suggested earlier that Athens and more broadly the, the Greek city-states defied the Persian great king defied the idea of being subordinate to an empire and, and to monarchy and said, no, we are free men. And I let it be said, men, right? So, yes, it was a male-dominated society. And yes, by the way, it was a society that practiced slavery. Um, so the free citizens of those societies were male property owners. Um, but they weren't defined by being patriarchal slave owners because all other societies around them, certainly including the Persian empire, did much the same, all right? But that Athens pioneered, among other things, what we still recognize as path-breaking comedy, hmm. brilliant comedy, Aristophanes, rival comedy, one still finds side-splittingly funny today, tragic drama, which was profound in its human reach and its appreciation of the stark dilemmas that can confront human beings skeptical and critical philosophy which we associate in some simple sense with you know Socrates, Plato, Aristotle there were many other philosophers and other strands of philosophy the beginnings of scientific inquiry happened with the Ionian philosophers and then the Hellenistic scientists in the third century BC if we ask ourselves how did um, medieval and modern western civilization emerge Broadly speaking, it's Athens and Jerusalem, you might say. Mm. Well, Athens, Rome and Jerusalem. What do we owe to Athens? We owe these things. Skeptical philosophy, scientific inquiry, tragic drama, representative government, freedom of speech, uh, you know, um, uh, 
and these things we we still identify broadly speaking with what western civilization is what do we owe to to christianity or more precisely to judaism to jerusalem mm. well a concept of divine law uh, an insistence that justice and compassion are more important than the powers that be or mere temple ritual uh, and a sense of faith which is to say that history has a meaning that it's heading somewhere mm. And that that somewhere has to do with justice and compassion. Telos, the idea that it's in telos, right? Yeah. There is a providence in some sense, right? Mm. Now you combine these things, and broadly speaking, you get what we think of, I suggest, as Western civilization. Mm -hmm. The human beings who live in the countries that at least ostensibly value those things by no means always live up to those ideas. By no means. Yeah. Um, and there are other countries which are not considered to be Western which do live up to those means, you know, and people within them who do as well. Uh, well, individuals and pockets certainly of human yes. decency and creativity, absolutely. But let's take, um, not least because it's so often used as a parallel these days and sometimes seen as as now rising to displace Western ascendancy, let's take Chinese culture. All right? People can often idealise Chinese culture and say, oh, it's Confucian, it's wise, it's far-seeing, it's pacifist. Most of this is myth, right? You can read the classics of Chinese literature or, or thought and find, yes, these, in their own way, very different from the Western canon. Mencius and Confucius. And, and, and Confucius and, and Lao Tzu. And, Lao Tzu, right, yeah. and, and uh, the poets of the Tang era uh -huh. and so on. Li Bo, Tu Fu. You know, they, these are great human achievements. Chinese um, porcelain, Chinese sculpture, etc. These, these are things of beauty. There's a real culture, you know, in, in China. It is different to the West. But let's not for a moment imagine that whereas the West gave rise uh, to wars and atrocities and colonialism, that somehow Chinese culture is, has not exhibited those things. It absolutely has. Yes. And all the way back through Chinese history, there has been uh, internecine war. There's been abuse of power. There's been corruption. There's been famine. There's been uh, the conquest of other peoples or attempted conquest. Right? There's Human rights abuses and, and shocking things. Absolutely. Yeah. Torture. All, all those things. Because these are, broadly speaking, human universals. Mm. Right? A Christian would say, um, and it's a myth, but it's, you know, for a long time it's been seen as, as importantly true, whether dogmatically or existentially, that humanity was created and fell into sin and we are reformed beings in need of redemption. If you simply naturalise that a little, it's a way of saying human beings are imperfect, or as Kant would say, made of crooked timber. <laughs> right? And that is a human universal. You can go all over the world, and if you're not blinded and, uh, and, and overly romantic, you find human beings do much the same things. What's extraordinary is those pockets of humanity, those individuals or those periods that rise above that to any extent at all. Mm. That's what's remarkable. And you can look at that in different fields of endeavor. If you look at it in terms of music, for example, there are cultures, and Islam programmatically, for example, has been one of them, that deprecate music and dancing and a lot of painting, the image of, of the human form or even of animals, as being an offense to God. And unsurprisingly then, in large parts of the Muslim world, these things have not developed. In the West, right, you have, uh, out of the monastic tradition, for example, developed plain song, monastic chant, Gregorian chant, as we often call it, um, polyphonic music, eventually orchestral music, opera. Right? Uh, in terms of painting, there are wonderful um, depictions of the human form, uh, of religious belief and aspiration, of last judgments, 
Um, these are part of Western civilization. They're not Islamic. They're not Chinese. And they are extraordinary. And by the time you get to composers like Mozart and Beethoven, all around the world, whatever their cultural background, we know people find these extraordinary. That's part of Western civilization. And that doesn't mean nobody else is a civilization. It that's, means that, to, that's, that's right. I think it's right? an important thing to note as well. Yeah. Right? yeah. Right? And Shakespeare, one should add, coming back almost to our point of departure, Shakespeare tends to have the same kind of impact around the world as do Beethoven and Mozart. People recognise that there's something in Shakespeare's extraordinary richness of language and his dramatisation, his depiction of humanity, up and down class barriers, across genders, that is deeply humane and immensely perceptive. So, so why, why, why do you think there is that kind of, and this is well cited at, at the universities and, and the academic circles as well, but like this idea of it's like a, a cultural or academic imperialism whereby there's not, much, not as much bi-directional influence of other civilizations on, on what, we would, what we have defined in this conversation as Western civilization. Why, why is it that I'm not able to, and I'm, I'm an educated person, I've done a, a degree at university and so on, why, why, why am I not able to speak to, you know, like the, the, the Shakespeare equivalent in China or... Well, I think there are two reasons for that. One is that, um, as we remarked earlier, it's very difficult these days to get a coherent um, liberal education, Mm. to get an introduction, never mind a mastery, Mm. to the fullness of human accomplishments and and get one's bearings. It's very challenging. Pardon me, I I set out myself to achieve that, and uh, and I've devoted, you might say, my life to it. and I might add that that's often been very challenging in various ways, but a profoundly enriching experience. Um, but there's a second reason for that problem, and that is that so much has been happening, so much has been changing, so much has been discovered in the last hundred years, <clears throat> pardon me, that um, we have to rethink almost everything in terms of inherited stories, religious doctrines, political assumptions ways of thinking about and relating to other cultures and states. Um, And the best way to encapsulate that, I think, is to say that until essentially the 20th century, there were different cultures around the world largely locked into their own stories. We didn't know about the natural world in anything like the way we now do. Let's remind ourselves that as recently as the period of the First World War, the best astronomers were still trying to figure out whether the Milky Way was the cosmos or not. And, and in 1916, uh, the, the leading astronomers of the time were saying it is. There are no other, um, uh, no other galaxies. The Milky Way is the cosmos. It took a decade until Edwin Hubble pointed out, um, based on data that persuaded the others because it was good science, actually, no, there are many other a multiplicity, a multiplicity, a multiplicity of galaxies, yeah. worlds, an indefinite number of them, in fact, and the cosmos is expanding. Mm. And this is mind blowing. But this is the 1920s. This is less than 100 years ago. Mm. At the same time, you had Alfred Wegener saying, "I think continents move," and even his geologist colleagues said, "You're, you're barking mad." Of course they don't. Right? It took until the 1970s for the best geologists to say, "Actually, he was right." You know tectonic plates exist and continents move and over time they move dramatically and we can now reconstruct the way in which there were ages in the past where the world was utterly different or take biological evolution we know that darwin wrote the origin of species uh, or published it in the late 1850s but most people never absorbed that and over the hundred years that followed or the 150 years since let's say 
enormous strides have been taken in reconstructing the evolution of life on Earth, the genetic basis of life, right? the taxonomy of life forms and the interrelationship between different kinds of life. These are enormous developments. Right? So cosmology, biology, geology, at the same time the archaeology of the human presence on the planet has taken enormous leaps forward. We now know far more about the patterns of human settlement and migration, the nature of linguistics and, and, and the different language families on the planet than we did before. Uh, and we, that is to say anybody who takes the trouble to inform themselves, have this in common. Mm. Right? But where has this, this mode of inquiry come from? Mm. Right? Not exclusively, let it be said, from the West, but substantially so. You go back to the whole idea which the Ionian philosophers and, and even more the Hellenistic scientists, so the Grecian world, BC, began this effort to understand naturalistically, in reality, how does the world work? Not in terms of myth, not in terms of story, not in terms of just so fables, but in fact, how demonstrably does it work as a physical system? Right? Um, and how do you reason well? It's all very well to have a strong opinion and say, well, that's mine and I'm entitled to my opinion, as many people still do. <laughs> yeah. but, but if you're trying to think clearly and critically, mm. what are the rules that govern that? The Greek philosophers are the first ones in the world, let it be said, to systematically set that out. This is part of our Western tradition. But it's now just as much as Beethoven or Shakespeare, something that can be and by and large is appreciated globally. And if you say that of Albert Einstein, if you say Einstein's physics are universal, almost nobody will disagree. Nazis talked about Jewish physics, and they were stupid to do so. They were wrong. Everybody pretty much agrees on that now. Mm. Right? When it comes to physics or mathematics, people don't have much trouble disagreeing. Uh, sorry, agreeing that this is universal. When it comes to cosmology now, all but dunderheads say, well, there is this vast cosmos, and it is expanding. And we're now told there's dark matter and dark energy, and it's mysterious, but we're told this. We tend to say, well, I guess that's the case, all right? <laughs> um, when it comes to fundamental principles of curiosity, of critical thinking, of scientific inquiry, where did they start? Well, human beings have been curious for a long time, but if you want the classics, if you want to really identify where that got going as a systematic enterprise, it was in the Greek world. I think it's a bold thesis to say that the tradition of Western thought, as you've outlined it, provides the most comprehensive understanding of reality as well as the best conditions for human flourishing. Many would criticise this as being biased or Western-centric, or, as the academics say, problematic, uh, and not considerate of the multiplicity of cultures and histories that make up humankind. Can you reflect on this? Yeah, perhaps the best way to encapsulate it is to begin by saying, as an illustration of my remark about Greek philosophy and science being pioneering and groundbreaking, so in the 3rd century BC, the chief librarian at the Library of Alexandria, Eratosthenes, conducted an experiment to try and figure out whether the Earth was curved, and if so, what was its circumference? And using what we would still recognise today as sound experimental method and good mathematics, he deduced, yes, it's curved, and uh, that the Earth is round, and secondly, he calculated its circumference mathematically to within 200 kilometres of the actual circumference. Now, he couldn't empirically test that, it was a mathematical deduction based on his establishment of what the curvature was between Syene in southern Egypt and Alexandria where he was. This was a remarkable experiment and deduction. That's what we tend to think of as science and the inheritance from that point goes all the way to Edwin Hubble. Not because everybody in the West was scientific, most were not, most still aren't. 
but the scientists were. Mm. That methodology is what has enabled us globally as human beings learning by that method, whether we're white, male, Western or anything else, to be scientific. That's what we mean by being scientific. All right. Now, um, has that led to problems? Well, some people would argue that it has, that our technologies, uh, our tenants, tendency as it's perceived to try and dominate nature, has led to, uh, and in a sense enabled through weaponry uh, and, and through the attitudes that it has at least allegedly um, fostered, to a situation where we are wrecking the biosphere, where we destroy yes. other species, yes. where we're polluting the seas, the ocean, we're ripping up minerals, and we have lost a capacity to be in the world phenomenologically as an integral part uh, of what we used to call creation. Right? And in Australia, for example, there are people who say we need to learn from the indigenous Australians who lived in harmony with the landscape yes. for tens of thousands of years, and they didn't wreck the place. Mm. Right? Now, let it be said that this is not by any means an unintelligible point of view we do face massive challenges in the world today but let's also remind ourselves that while people might criticize the scientific method and and technology and western imperialism all these grounds nevertheless all over the world wherever they've had an opportunity other cultures have said we want that science we want that technology we want that standard of living all right um what is it that china's been doing recently they might talk about Confucianism and the Chinese dream as if it's, uh, you know, uh, autochthonous and endogenous. But the reality is they have adopted market economics, by and large, though in a mercantilist variation. They've adopted as much technology as they can and trying to innovate in it. They want a high standard of living materially and they're achieving it. They've bought the whole package except democracy and free speech, <laughs> mm. right? Um, we collectively, therefore, have this challenge, right? Now, to bring the two together... What was it that Greek thinkers were doing in, in the 5th and 4th and 3rd centuries BC? They were starting to ask very fundamental questions, not for the most part, and not at their best, certainly. How does Greek, Greece get to dominate the world? But what are fundamental truths, all right, which are true not because we're Greek, not because we're white, not yes. because we're male. They simply are true. Says Aristotle, what are the laws of thought? How would we know? Right? How do you make what's actually a warranted deduction instead of a confused, superstitious, irrational one? Yeah. Right? Uncoupled from ideas of nations or ethnicity or language, whatever it might be. Precisely it's so. It's very important right? point to make. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we are now in a situation in the 21st century where, as humanity, we face challenges in understanding, communicating, coordinating, innovating, managing. And... Uh, and it would be quite fatuous, of course, to say that you can only find your answers by reading Western writers. No, it's modes of inquiry and principles of thought that we need to pay attention to. And we can communicate across cultures and we can uh, arrive at agreed truths just to the extent that we follow laws of good reasoning, of good inquiry, of good experiment, right? Uh, and, and in significant measure, we're doing that. If we want to understand the ecological system, it won't do to fall back on the dream time. Mm. We have to understand what is actually the case. Mm. All right? If we want to arrive at, at st stable, sustainable standards of living, we have to understand 
the impact we're having. We have to understand how markets work, how good governance works, etc. We have to be able to agree on these things and implement them. What was it that the Greek city-states started to do? They said, rather than have tyranny and greed dominating, we want public accountability, we want freedom of speech, we want, we want public debate, we want to arrive at policies collectively. This goes back to Pericles' um, speech in 430 BC, right? Precisely. Mm-hmm. All right. Did they get it right perfectly? No, they didn't. Did they establish ideals and principles that we still aspire to? Well, pretty much yes. Right? Um, and let's remind ourselves, you know, in, in China in 1919, students demonstrated, uh, and this was after the revolution of the Amazon monarchy, not before, demonstrated, and they said, what do we want in China? We want science and we want democracy. Mr. Science, Mr. Democracy. Where were these ideas coming from? Not from Confucius, and certainly not from the Chinese imperial tradition. These were coming, ultimately, from Greek civilization. In your mind, Paul, what is the future of Western civilization, given that we are witnessing crises of democracy in the West, the emergence of a multipolar and often hostile geopolitical order, and that we are facing major ecological challenges? Perhaps you could link this in with a reflection on your book Credo and Twelve Poems, which is your attempt at envisioning a future uh, which is both humane and ethical um, for the 21st century. Yes, indeed it was. You know, uh, we've touched on this glancingly, but uh, there have been radical feminists who have been saying for some decades now, uh, or other deconstructionists, as they're sometimes called, uh, we've got to get away from this so-called Western canon because it's overwhelmingly the work of dead white males. And uh, I wrote Creed on Twelve Poems as a white male at a time when I thought I might be soon dead because I had metastatic melanoma uh, and it wasn't at all clear that I would be alive very much longer. And so I thought, well, I might be white and I might be male, but... There it is. Um, let me just try and distill what uh, I believe after a lifetime of questing and reading. And it's not a big book, um, and it's written in the form of poems and aphorisms rather than extended abstract discursive argument. The most Aurelian, Marcus Aurelius, in terms of like the aphorisms, the meditations, and meditations. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, to some extent. And for those of your uh, listeners who don't know who Marcus Aurelius was, he was a uh, one of the better emperors of Rome in the second century, one of those whom Gibbon referred to as the five good emperors. He, you know, he famously wrote in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that from Nerva to Marcus Aurelius, Rome and indeed the Western world were probably governed better than at any time before or since. Now, one could debate that, but th- that was a perception. And certainly those five emperors in that time uh, were all responsible uh, characters all rulers one could still regard with respect, whereas many of those before and after were not by any measure uh, Mm. such rulers. Be that as it may, Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. He he subscribed to the Greek school of philosophy known as Stoicism, uh, which was very different from Christianity. Um, And he wrote these meditations by way of trying to distill what he believed and, and thought and what gave him a sense of coherence, meaning, principle, etc. So in my own way, I was writing Credo and Twelve Poems to try to distill, not, of course, being anything remotely like a Roman emperor, <laughs> what did I think uh, after all this time? Um, but to go to your larger question, which the book in its own way attempts to address, uh, where we head in the 21st century, I, I think that one can say, uh, perhaps even should say, that since the moon landings in 1969, there has been a, a growing sense that we are all in this together on planet Earth, that we have this shimmering blue sphere in the middle of this vast cosmos, which we're only beginning to get our minds around. Uh, 
And if we mess this up, there's nowhere else to go. Elon Musk might talk about putting a settlement on Mars. That's a brave venture, but it is in no way and cannot ever be a substitute for sustaining this planet as an environment. It is incomparably more attractive and habitable for life, including our life, than Mars could ever be. Yeah. Um, Mars is a desert. You know. well, the idea of living there revolves me, frankly. So yes, I, mean, I, it, it would, I don't get this whole obsession. It would be wholly dependent yeah. on advanced technologies and a home base here. We have to look after planet Earth. And, and for all that we've been talking about Western civilization, I can't emphasize too much that what I admire most about the West is exactly those elements in it which aspire to and in important measures reach a, a transcendent understanding or level of creativity that as human beings we can by and large all feel moved and instructed by. Given that we do need to wrap up, I suppose um, I would perhaps end with these three brief remarks. We need to consider that at various points over its history, Western civilization has faltered, uh, and most famously in the 5th and 6th centuries of the Common Era, what we often call AD, or used to call Anno Domini, the Year of the Lord, the Roman Empire fell at least the empire in the west fell uh, overrun by German barbarians Um, what some people think of as western civilization actually began after that with the Christian civilizing of the barbarian west Um, my own view is that western civilization properly understood began as I said in the classical world Mm -hmm. and that the civilizing involved uh, in the middle ages was to some extent hanging on to elements of that and then trying to create something which included that Judaic thing of mm. religious faith, telos, mm. compassion and justice. Mm-hmm. With, and as we said, mixed results, but some extraordinary uh, results. And I mention all this because it could be that in the 21st century, we have a variation on that, that the West, as we've known it in the modern world, certainly its colonial power and ascendancy, has pretty much come to an end. And many of us, like St. Augustine looking at the Roman Empire in the 5th century, might say, Perhaps that's not such a bad thing. After all, Augustine famously wrote in The City of God Against the Pagans, empires come and go. We have our eyes on the main prize, the city of God, standards of justice and humanity and salvation, which the empire did not by and large live up to. Uh, We can set high standards in the 21st century and and try to live up to them. But we may suffer along the way, as the West did in that era, setbacks and catastrophes, which one wouldn't wish on anybody. They may be ecological. They may be because other civilizations uh, feel vengeful about what they suffered at Western hands in centuries gone by. And it may be that we won't always be able to fend off that uh, blowback, as some people call it. Uh, But how should we think about that as any given individual? My submission is that we do our best if we say at every instance... We're not only trying to remember and freeze some old tradition, much less a purely territorial one, but, as I mentioned in the case of St. Augustine, who is, of course, Catholic, um, what are the principles, what are the visions, what are the genuine insights that we would live by in the hope and belief that they will regenerate civilization? And in the 21st century, how do we make that happen on a cosmopolitan basis so that substitute some other phrase for city of God, mm. but human civilization can in fact not only survive, uh, but rise to a whole new level. That becomes a universal vision in the same way the principles of philosophy and science 
do, uh, and which at least the biblical tradition aspired to, and, and it has been problematic. It has often led to sectarianism, intolerance, hierarchy, etc. We have our work cut out, but we have very great riches in, mm. in writing and creativity upon which to draw. And when I talk about Western civilization, it's those riches and that tradition to which I'm chiefly referring. And finally, Paul, um, coming back to you, what has it all meant for you as a thinking, feeling, loving human being on this beautiful blue sphere, this marble spinning uh, in in our in our cosmos? Um, how, how has I guess your readings and your writing and your um, I guess in more than infatuation, your love of Western civilization and its endless riches in behind each of those. Uh, palatial palace doors which of course you can't explore every what's behind every single door how, how has that kind of you know moved or shaped you as a as a, as a as a as a sentient being on this planet for your you know your your brief window between two great eternities before birth and after death and uh, and how do you sort of see that continuing to shape you in the next couple of years and, and decades uh, that's a small question, of course. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, nice glib one to end on, wasn't it? Yeah. Sorry. Um, but, you know, we do, I suppose, individually as well as collectively, have to ask ourselves those questions because we can so easily beaver away for years at, at some appointed task, at a profession, um, uh, at academic inquiry, at scientific inquiry, without thinking sufficiently about at the end of the day, what does all this mean? Why, why am I doing this? Why would I do this rather than something else? Mm. Have I wasted my time? What really makes for human fulfillment? Um, and needs to say, I've certainly asked myself those questions over time. But I've come to the view that though there are many ways to live a fulfilling human life, and the last thing I'd want to suggest is that in order to live a fulfilling life, everybody should do what I've done. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nevertheless, the kinds of things I've done have enabled me to move, as I said with regard to the sonnets, within this extraordinary realm, this palace, as you called it, of writing and music and art. And in recent years, particularly when I've written my own books, I feel I'm participating in my own way in that extraordinary tradition. I'm, I'm part of it mm. in a way that if you're only an observer, you can't, you know, um, and uh, that has been a source of wonderment to me. Um, and I should add, I suppose, that after a while, if you're combining learning, which many people think of as academic and, and somewhat arid and bookish, with living, which I've certainly endeavoured to do, then the two interweave in a kind of dance. And we can close, perhaps, with... Uh, reference back to the sonnets as one instance and, and perhaps the earliest instance of my doing this because they were poems where I was endeavouring to capture the meaning and significance of a profound and heartbreaking love affair that I had. And over the years, what I've been doing in, in each of my books is trying to give expression to uh, what do I think I understand? What is meaningful to me? Um, and one of the things that's happened along the way is that I have ended up, to my great good fortune, in relationship with a woman who uh, is quite remarkable in her own right, who loves me very much and for whom I've certainly written my best poetry. Um, and 
I have this sense that however much longer I might live, whether it's two years or 22 or 30, I now, um, I have meaning and connection in the world. That there are many other things I might do and write, um, and many other people I might meet, but after 40 years and more of questing... In the desert. <laughs> in, it sometimes felt like a desert experience, yeah. you know. In fact, in a talk at my old school a few years ago, I said this, that it was, it was exactly 40 years since I'd left school. During that time, I'd been in search of truth and meaning, and it had often felt like the Hebrew sojourn in the desert, mm-hmm. that I now felt as though um, I had perhaps not arrived in the promised land, but in a manner of speaking, I was on Mount Nebo looking into it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And for those, again, if you're listening to whom that would be an obscure allusion, I'm talking about Moses on Mount Nebo looking into, uh, dare I say it, Palestine. (laughs) It was obscure for me as well. I laughed out of politeness. I had no idea what Mount Nebo was, sorry. And and of course, Moses didn't get to the Promised Land. He died outside, on the far side of the Jordan, right? And when I said this in 2015, it was because I knew that I was ill. I knew that I might die sometime quite soon. Uh, But because of what I'd already written uh, and experienced by then, I thought... But I haven't wasted those 40 years. Mm. Uh, And it seems to me, uh, perhaps this is the best note on which to end, that for all of us, we have these enormous challenges and faces in the 21st century. And whatever cultural tradition we come from, it can only ever be a source of promptings and hints about what we might do. And it's up to us then to blaze a trail and create something that, that has real value. And we can't be certain in the end that it will work. Uh, this is where the whole idea of a promised land and perhaps seeing it and not really getting there yourself is germane. But we can contribute to the best of our ability to the possibility of a higher level of civilization and a better world. Uh, and, and in fact, if I may, this didn't occur to me until just now, one of, one of my more recent poems, which is the poem that begins Creedon 12 poems, is, um, is a, a kind of um, a whimsical poem, almost like Ogden Nash rather than Shakespeare. Uh, and it's called We Carry Oats, and it pivots on this um, fanciful conceit that um, we are uh, cellular organisms. So um, just to give a little bit of background to that. I quite like this poem, actually. Uh, in, the, in the world of long ago, from the beginning of life on Earth, for the better part of three billion years, there were only uh, single-celled or slightly more complex uh, cellular organisms. There was no um, what we call macrobiota, no large life forms. And the elementary biology is that the first single cell organisms, bacteria, were what we call prokaryotes. And they replicated, they reproduced by, by what we would call cloning, by simply splitting and multiplying themselves. They didn't have any sexual interaction or genetic transmission. And after this colossal period of two billion years, they mutated into what we call eukaryotic cells, or some of them did, and eukaryotic cells exchanged genetic information, and that gave rise to this whole extraordinary world of plants and animals and ultimately human beings, which consist of masses of these eukaryotic cells and bacteria and symbionts um, that make complex life forms a reality. This is life on Earth. This is the real story of creation, if you will. So I posed myself the question in the poem, what difference does it make being eukaryotic rather than prokaryotic? And I think, given that background explanation, the poem is more or less self-explanatory. As I say, it's, it's whimsical. And it goes like this. 
How would life be? Would it still be erotic? Had it made you and me simply prokaryotic? Not very, I'd say. Endless self-replication. No cellular play to exchange information. So second my motion, as life bobs and floats on the Archean Ocean, where you carry oats. Will you carry oats, if they come from me, as we play wild moats on a billion-year spree? I'd love some from you, if you sent them my way, to refresh and renew my own DNA. <laughs> on that note, thank you very much for your time again, Paul. It's been an absolute... Um pleasure and a, and a great privilege to, to discuss um, life, earth and the, the universe and, and so on with you. So thank you very, very much for your time. You're most welcome, Nick. It's been a pleasure.